Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. Um, My name's Fred Mendelssohn. I'm a neuroscientist, uh, retired from that a few years ago from the Howard Florey Institute. Um, The other thing that uh, I've been concerned about uh, most of my life is uh, nuclear weapons and the threat that they pose for humanity. So, first of all, thank you, Naomi, for the invitation to talk here. It's, it's wonderful to see uh, innovative architecture and hopefully, hopefully good ideas with it. it it's a great honour for ICANN to win the Nobel Prize for Peace this year in recognition of our uh, historic treaty, treaty um, which was... Uh, occurred on the 7th of July this year with the backing of 122 nations in the United Nations uh, and and one negative, which was Holland, and uh, a number of abstentions, as you might expect, uh, of uh, the nuclear powers and their dependents. Um, But since the catastrophic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, the human race has lived under the threat of annihilation. And uh, this has been such a chronic thing that people uh, began to accept it as reality. And, and it also shows how uh, incapable governments were of, of dealing with winding back nuclear weapons. Um, you will have heard that uh, the Americans are upgrading their missiles. So the problem is, is not persisting, it's getting worse. And any of you who listen to the news and hear um, Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, whose fingers might be near a nuclear button, is absolutely terrifying. The lack of progress on nuclear disarmament is not because of a lack of public interest. In fact, a recent uh, survey poll in Australia showed that 77% of people think our government should be doing more to uh, get rid of nuclear weapons. The main uh, legal instrument that was controlling nuclear weapons is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was signed in 1970. And it's critically flawed because it generated two classes of of countries, um, those that already had nuclear weapons uh, and those that didn't, uh, who the treaty said were not to do so. Um, And, of course, um, uh, under Article 6 of this treaty... um, the uh, nuclear weapon states undertook to pursue in good faith negotiations on effective measures relating to cessation of the nuclear arms race, to nuclear disarmament and to general and complete disarmament. Well, that was 47 years ago. Uh, uh, Things are not moving on the political diplomatic front at all. There's still 14,830 nuclear weapons on Earth. Every one of them is capable of creating the most terrible humanitarian consequences. One bomb in a uh, populated city like Melbourne would kill millions of people. Because of this miserable failure of the NPT to deal with nuclear weapons... The Medical Association for Prevention of War here in Melbourne decided that we needed to have a different approach. And the different approach was to seek uh, support of like-minded groups, grassroots organisations, non-government organisations, civil society groups who shared our aim of ridding the world of nuclear weapons. Now we have 468 partners in, a, in 101 cities. And the Australian group 
um, has continued to be a major force in, in ICANN and made really spectacular progress. And that's what I'm here to tell you about today. Basically, how a Melbourne anti-nuclear campaign won the Nobel Peace Prize. But much more importantly, uh, how we were able to get this ban treaty through the United Nations so that nuclear weapons are now illegal. And the consequences of that, when you begin to think about it, are enormous. Uh, I think it spells the death knell of nuclear weapons. Um, our organisation is entirely voluntary uh, and we're totally dependent on philanthropy for our existence. So we've worked on a shoestring buzz budget and uh, our staff uh, is really one and a half people uh, have performed magnificently. I'd, I'd now like to hand over to... Professor Tillman Ruff, um, to tell you about the treaty and the humanitarian initiative. Um, Tillman is an infectious diseases physician. Uh, his particular interest is uh, hepatitis, immunisation. But in parallel with that, for, for 30 years at least, he's been a passionate anti-nuclear campaigner. He's um, been on a number of... Uh, important committees of the World Health Organization, of the Red Cross, uh, but has been a, a leader internationally in the International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War. Um, so uh, I think Tillman's uh, personality is inspiring his energy and focus uh, also. So I'd like to hand over to Tillman to tell us about the treaty. Thanks very much, Fred, and thank you all for being here on this uh, very pleasant but pretty hot afternoon. So thanks very much. I might actually step back a little before we sort of jump straight to the treaty. I'm actually going to let Tim Wright, who's addressing you next, talk about that. I want to tell a little bit more about the story about how this campaign in Melbourne was established and I think some of the ideas that that really helped to make it the right thing at the right time um, in a way that we really couldn't have you know, exceeded our wildest dreams 12 years ago sitting around a kitchen table in Melbourne. Um, and also a little bit about the partnerships involved. So how, we, how did we get to this where the nations of the world were sitting down at the United Nations uh, negotiating a, a treaty text, which, which Tim will talk a bit more about. So there were really sort of two threads that came together. Um, Fred's talked about just how severe and continuing, indeed increasing, is the risk of nuclear weapons being used. And it was really in 2005 when the five-yearly review conference of the Non-Proliferation Treaty that Fred mentioned, there's a big review conference every five years, hundreds of diplomats meet for a month at God knows what cost, and they agreed nothing. Not a single sentence. And then the World Summit, the biggest meeting of heads of state ever held a little later that year, also agreed absolutely nothing. So it was clear that business as usual was not going anywhere very fast, uh, that, you know, nothing was... There were not even talks about talks. And at the same time, we had this extraordinary, inspiring success where initially a couple of not the biggest or most powerful governments, initially led by Canada working with civil society coalition and international organisations and the Red Cross, was able to create the international uh, treaty to ban landmines, despite the opposition of the major producers and users of those weapons and the biggest states, Russia, US, China, didn't want a bar of that. So we had this extraordinary sort of contrast of frustration and despair, really, about the moribund status of disarmament and this extraordinary inspiration of what could be achieved. So it was a very distinguished Malaysian obstetrician, uh, Dr Ron McCoy, who said, we need an international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. We should get started on this right now. And there was a group of us in, in, in Melbourne in the Medical Association who thought, yeah, that sounds good. We think we might be able to help with that. What do we need? What sort of strategy might work? 
We didn't want to create new organisations. We wanted to respect all the many organisations that had been working on disarmament, but we wanted to add value, help people to work together in a coordinated way. The governments who really wanted to push things along said, we can't talk to hundreds of different partners. We need one civil society partner to, that we can deal with and can be an effective partner with us. So it was a global campaign coalition. Anyone who was on about getting rid of nuclear weapons through a treaty to prohibit them and provide for their elimination could join the campaign, no cost, just help. We wanted the message to be about the real costs and consequences of the weapons, not the politics, not the, all of the sort of myth and magic that's been built around them, you know, that these horrendous weapons could somehow make people secure, that we have them not to use them, that, you know, it's all about strategic stability and parity and balance and all of this abstract stuff. We wanted to focus on what the weapons really do and what they do to people, what they do to country, the fact that you can't use these weapons in any way. And if you understand what they really do, then the only possible, sensible, reasonable option is to get rid of them as soon as possible. So focus on the evidence of the humanitarian consequences. We wanted to build a campaign coalition around the world. We needed to engage young people and, and we needed some money. And we had the extraordinary uh, luck to have um, some really generous people in Melbourne. Um, the Cantor family, Eve and her mother Anne, Mark Wooten through the Pooler Foundation that gave us enough money to be able to employ some terrific people um, and get stuff done and kick this off. And then the International Physicians Movement embraced um, the campaign. And we really wanted to sort of balance the horror, the humour and the hope, if you like. So you have to kind of understand how bad nuclear weapons are and how urgent this is to feel like it's important and urgent to do something. But you also need to appreciate, have a sense of hope, that this can be changed. These are machines that people built. They can be dismantled. We've done it before. We can do it again. And leaving it all with some humour. So... It needed to combine those elements. Um, and so that was essentially the basis for the campaign. And we were very fortunate that a number of things came together in what was called the Humanitarian Initiative. So this really historic development to sort of take the leadership, if you like, or the control of discussions around these weapons, which after all do threaten everything and everybody. We've all got a stake in this. This is not just to be left to a couple of governments who claim some unique right to, to threaten everything and everyone. This is an issue for all of us. And even legally under the NPT, all countries are obliged to progress disarmament, not just those who have the weapons. And so very important in that process was the world's largest humanitarian organisation, the Red Cross, taking this on as a really serious priority. So the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross called the diplomatic court together in Geneva in 2010 before the next review conference of that non-proliferation treaty and said, this is unfinished business. Getting rid of nuclear weapons is a humanitarian imperative for us, for the world's largest humanitarian organisation. We need to get on with this. And that gave a number of governments courage to, in that review conference, this time, instead of agreeing nothing, one of the key things they did agree was that any use of nuclear weapons would have catastrophic humanitarian consequences. They hadn't actually said that before, um, collectively. And that provided the basis for the governments of then Norway, then Mexico, then Austria, to host what were in fact the first intergovernmental conferences ever. Um, you know, it's extraordinary that it took almost 70 years after nuclear weapons had been first used on people before there was a government conference to actually sit down and consider what the impacts of these weapons are. And those, the evidence presented and updated, the voices, the, the really powerful testimony of the survivors of the Japanese bombings and of nuclear test survivors around the world, including Australia, um, were really powerful and, and led to clear conclusions that really no government seriously challenged, that any use of nuclear weapons would be an absolute catastrophe, that no effective response is possible. All of the humanitarian and health services in the world couldn't deal with the aftermath of one nuclear weapon on a city, let alone thousands or hundreds. That the risks of nuclear weapons use were growing, had been underestimated and continued as long as the weapons were around, and that there was a legal gap. You know, we have treaties that ban 
chemical and biological weapons, cluster munitions, landmines. In each case, what's worked is a clear understanding that on the humanitarian basis of the effects of the weapons, you can't use this in any, in any legitimate way. They're just too awful and indiscriminate any way you cut it. Stigmatise the weapons, enshrine in international law that nobody should have these, that these weapons are now unacceptable and illegal. And that then provides the basis and the motivation for the progressive elimination. And we're making very significant progress. It's not perfect, we're not quite there yet on all of those weapons, but it's working. And that's been the path. So the logic was to follow up that humanitarian initiative with a treaty process. And the United Nations, after a couple of sort of twists and turns, um, established in 2016 a working group open to all nations to say, how are we going to take this forward? What's the best thing that the world can do right now to try and address this danger? And the very clear conclusion from the majority of countries was the next best thing that we can do is a new treaty to ban nuclear weapons and to provide for their elimination. So that was the recommendation that came out of the United Nations General Assembly by an overwhelming majority of countries, over 120 countries. There are 190 members, states of the United Nations, 194. Um, there are nine nuclear-armed states. There are 28 members, states of NATO that sort of rely on nuclear weapons for their protection. And then there's a few others like South Korea, Japan and Australia, unfortunately, still. So that's about 40-odd countries. So... It's a very substantial majority of the rest of the world that, that was behind this. Um, and it happened through the United Nations General Assembly where it can't be blocked. The problem with the non-NPT conferences, the Conference on Disarmament, which is where the UN is supposed to negotiate disarmament treaties, is that there's a consensus requirement. So every state has to agree before they can do anything. If just one state objects, nothing can happen. And that's why the Conference on Disarmament has not been able to agree even on an agenda for 21 years now. I mean, it's totally blocked. It's... So the General Assembly, however, which is the most inclusive and democratic body of the United Nations, can make decisions on substantial matters by two-thirds majority vote. So if the rest of the world really wants to do something, they can do it through that body. And it worked it works spectacularly. Um, in really short time, these negotiations lasted only from mandate to adopted text was only eight months with four weeks of negotiations interspersed and resulted in this absolutely historic treaty that, that for the first time really comprehensively prohibits nuclear weapons and, and provides a pathway to get rid of them. So I might finish there and let, um, yeah. let Tim talk about the, the treaty itself and Australia's position. Thank you, Tillman. I, I think uh, we, we'll put some questions at, at the end. Um, yes, uh, Tim Wright is, is campaign manager and is an extraordinary fellow. We're extremely lucky to have have had him. Um, he's uh, uh, in some ways like Superman. Um, in day-to-day -day life, he's mild-mannered, he's charming, he's persuasive, he's focused... Um, but he's, he's really, uh, when politicians and uh, uh, see Tim coming down the corridor, they shrink. Um, he's been ex extremely effective. So um, over to you, Tim, as uh, Superman or as mild-mannered Tim Wright. Thank you, Fred. Uh, I think that's the most embarrassing introduction I've ever had, um, but uh, it's a lovely one too. Um, so, thank you. Um, it's uh, been an incredible campaign to be part of. Um, I remember a little over 10 years ago, Tillman and a number of other doctors came to me and I was a law student at the time and they told me about uh, this idea of setting up a, a campaign and that they had uh, received uh, the funds to do it and um, this the thought of being able to create new international law to uh, address one of the greatest problems or the greatest problem facing humanity was just so uh, exciting to me. And it's been 
such an incredible team of uh, people involved in this campaign and um, still much work to, to, to be done, of course, but um, the adoption of the treaty uh, earlier this year was a real uh, turning point and now we need to use this treaty to uh, achieve our ultimate objective, which is the total elimination of these abhorrent weapons. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about the negotiations. Um, there was, of course, a huge amount of work done uh, in the lead-up to these negotiations earlier this year. Uh, Tillman talked about uh, some of it. Um, we really tried to change the whole debate about nuclear weapons, and instead of having these um, abstract discussions about power politics and uh, deterrence and so on, uh, we wanted to put the focus on the people who would, would be victimised by nuclear weapons and those who already have been. Um, so, as Tillman said, hearing from survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, survivors of nuclear testing around the world, really helped us to build the case for the total prohibition and elimination of nuclear weapons. And they had such a profound uh, impact on the politicians and the diplomats who we needed to persuade to get on board with this uh, idea of the treaty. Um, so we went around the world and we uh, enlisted the support of organisations working on a whole range of issues. And we said that this needs to be part of your work as well, that uh, nuclear weapons is, uh, pose a threat to all of us uh, and would affect your work in profound ways if ever these weapons were used uh, again. And I think that that message resonated uh, with those organisations. We spoke at public events around the world. We um, uh, spoke at schools. We lobbied politicians. We briefed journalists. We addressed the United Nations. And um, at, all, at all of these events, we said we need a treaty um, that uh, puts these weapons on the same level as other indiscriminate weapons. And when I got involved um, in the campaign in 2006, uh, six months or so before the launch, um, we were talking at that time and I was involved uh, to an extent in a campaign uh, to ban cluster munitions. Um, and I was working part-time for a senator then. And that was a very important um, treaty as well. But it just seemed ridiculous that we had these treaties prohibiting other types of weapons but not one to prohibit the very worst weapons of all, the weapons that are designed to incinerate entire cities in a flash. Um, and so we wanted to uh, fix international law and to uh, create that pathway that we needed to the total elimination of nuclear weapons. Um, so Earlier this year, March uh, 28th, I think it was, um, at the United Nations, we finally uh, began work uh, on negotiating the treaty. Uh, and the start of those negotiations brought an end to two decades of paralysis in multilateral nuclear disarmament efforts. So it had been two decades since the last uh, instrument had been negotiated on this issue, and that was the... Uh, comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty um, of 1996. Um, so we discussed you know, the kinds of things that we wanted in this treaty and the most important thing was to establish a categorical prohibition to make sure all of the activities that we wanted prohibited would be prohibited. Um, so, of course, the treaty prohibits the use of nuclear weapons, but it also prohibits things like production and stockpiling and possession. And one of the really important prohibitions is the prohibition on assisting or encouraging anyone else to engage in any of those prohibited activities. And this is particularly important for a country like Australia, which doesn't have nuclear weapons, um, but is involved in encouraging uh, the United States to possess a nuclear arsenal and potentially to use its nuclear arsenal in Australia's defence. So this treaty will uh, challenge all countries to uh, reject 
policies of that kind. And although we haven't uh, yet had any support from the nuclear-armed states, um, we're very confident that over time, as the pressure builds, as more and more countries uh, join this treaty, that those nuclear-armed nations uh, will come on board. And if you look, for example, uh, at the United Kingdom, where the opposition leader, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, has said that he fully supports nuclear disarmament and supports this treaty, things can change. Opportunities will exist in the future where some of these countries do shift their position and we now have an instrument that uh, allows them uh, to come on board. Um, the treaty also uh, has a provision on victim assistance and environmental remediation. Uh, so... These provisions uh, help to uh, ensure that the human rights of those around the world who are affected by the use and testing of nuclear weapons are addressed, uh, that they have the, uh, their needs met uh, and that the environments uh, that have been contaminated by nuclear tests are remediated. Um, the treaty is not yet in force. It will enter into force once uh, 50 countries have formally joined it. So they need to sign it and ratify it. Ratifying usually involves a parliamentary process. Um, so there's a huge amount of work uh, that needs to be done over the next year or so uh, to reach that threshold. And then we'll keep working to universalise the treaty to ensure that every country uh, comes on board. Um, so the adoption of the treaty itself was a you know, really exciting moment. And the... Um, a woman named Setsuko Thurlow, uh, who's a Hiroshima survivor, was there and she delivered uh, the closing statement on behalf of our campaign. And she said that the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been waiting for that day for 72 years. And she described it as the beginning of the end of nuclear weapons. Uh, so our challenge is uh, to ensure that it is the beginning of the end. And there really are uh, only two ends. It's the end of us or the end of nuclear weapons. And we... <coughs> I just uh, ate a fly, sorry. Um, uh, I, don't, I, don't, yeah, I don't know. It is a sign of something. Um, but uh, I hope that you will all join us in, um, in making sure that this treaty does uh, achieve its objectives. So thank you for... Uh, coming along today, and we look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, well, we, we would like some questions and comments. Um, maybe while you're... Yes, Naomi. How do you eliminate 14,000 nuclear weapons? It's a big job, but it's, it's, it can be done. And the biggest, I guess, piece of evidence for that is that we, the peak of nuclear weapons numbers was 70,000. In 1986, there were 70,000 nuclear weapons. So 15,000 is 15,000 too many, but there have actually been a very significant number greater than that that have actually already been... Um, that are no longer deployed... Not all of those have been dismantled, but we have really good experience from the first START treaty that limited the numbers of strategic, so long-range, big inter intercontinental ballistic missiles, and the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement between Russia and the US that eliminated medium and intermediate-range land-based missiles in Europe, uh, eliminated a whole class of weapons in a verified way that was implemented effectively. So this can be done. Um, there's no question that, that that's possible. The, the challenge that may be more difficult, I think, uh, and that certainly needs substantial work in parallel, is the problem of what's called fissile material. So the stuff that actually makes the nuclear bomb nuclear, it comes in two forms. It's either highly enriched uranium, so that the uranium that can be enriched in a particular isotope from what comes out of the ground to run in a reactor can be enriched further and made into fuel that can be used in a weapon. And the other way to get material for, for bombs is from plutonium. 
And plutonium is essentially created by uranium atoms inside a reactor absorbing the neutrons that are flying around in large numbers and making a heavier elements, which, one of which is plutonium. So it's those two materials. So if you've got an enrichment plant, if you've got a nuclear power program, if you've got nuclear reactors, uh, then you can access either or both of those materials. And currently there are about 1,500 tonnes of highly enriched uranium in the world and about 490 tonnes of plutonium that's already been separated out from spent nuclear fuel. That's enough for about 200,000 nuclear weapons worth because one nuclear weapon has about four kilograms of plutonium on average or about 20 or 25 kilograms of highly enriched uranium and we've got thousands of tonnes of that stuff. So stopping the production of those two materials, keeping what exists really secure and where possible eliminating those materials is going to be a really important parallel job. But in terms of doing that, that's, that's possible. About half the nuclear power which has been generated in the United States for about the last 15 years has been from uranium that used to be inside Soviet and Russian nuclear weapons, um, actually. So there are different things you can do with the materials, but can we reduce to zero? Absolutely. And it's, in fact, much easier from a verification point of view to verify zero for everybody than to verify some intermediate number and, you know, potential enrichment programs. So, yes, it's absolutely doable. And all of the sort of serious proposals that governments around the world have developed and put forward over the years um, to get rid of their weapons entirely. So President Ronald Reagan from the US and, and Mikhail Gorbachev in Russia agreed at two successive summits in 85 and 86, they almost agreed to get rid of their nuclear weapons. And they thought it could be done in 15 years. When Rajiv Gandhi in India proposed a plan for the elimination of nuclear weapons, they envisaged that this could be done in about 12 12 to 16 years was their time frame. And there are other proposals that... They all involve some years. You know, this is not something that you can do over weeks or months. But is it doable? Absolutely. We've done it before. If we kept going at the, at the historic rates of dismantlement, uh, they would all be gone in about a decade. I wonder if I could ask you both to comment on... Uh what does Australia now need to do and what do you think the key steps for ICANN are now in the future? Tim. Yeah, so Australia wasn't involved in the negotiations of the treaty and um, this is because uh, of the policy of extended nuclear deterrence. So the belief that um, we are somehow protected by the US uh, nuclear arsenal. Uh, and... So far, they've you know, said that they're not uh, interested at all in um, supporting this initiative. But uh, I think that the pressure will build on the Australian government, both from the Australian public and from other countries, uh, particularly other countries in our region. Uh, all of the countries of Southeast Asia support this. Um, the Pacific Islands support this. Uh, and they will constantly be raising this as a bilateral issue a bilateral issue with Australia uh, in the future. Um, we've been doing what we can to uh, bring as many individual politicians on board as possible. Uh, so we have a pledge, which is a pledge that they can sign, saying that they will work for Australia's signature and ratification of the treaty. Uh, and we've had, I think, about 70 federal parliamentarians sign that so far. Uh, we've got well over half of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Caucus. Um, that said, we don't yet have a clear commitment from the Labor Party to sign the treaty. Um, they're concerned about um, what the United States thinks um, and um, you know, don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Um, but we need to make it clear that uh, it's important to the Australian public that we don't have anything to do with these worst weapons of mass destruction, uh, that this is a matter of principle, and you know, if it upsets President Trump, then 
so be it. Um, you know, if you look at the situation um, you know, between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un and uh, you think that that is evidence of uh, global stability and, and the fact that nuclear weapons help keep the peace, um, I think you know, that's, that's preposterous. And you know, who can say with absolute confidence that this won't result in catastrophe? Um, so you know, deterrence is this abstract theory that is designed to mask the genocidal reality of these weapons. And uh, it's been kind of uh, used as propaganda for, for decades. And this treaty really compels governments to uh, or exposes um, uh, that policy for what it is. Um, and forces every country in the world uh, to say whether they're for nuclear weapons or against nuclear weapons. And Australia at the moment is saying that they're for nuclear weapons. The Australian government, that is their official position. Um, and um, that needs to change, and I'm 100% confident that it will change. Um, over t- uh, but you know, the only question is how long it will take. Um, If I could just pick up that uh, comment uh, about balanced deterrence. The the whole of the acquisition of huge numbers of weapons is is built on this idea that you have balanced forces and that that's somehow stable. But that concept is deeply flawed for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, um, it presumes uh, that the, the people in charge are sane and reasonable. Uh, and we've seen in our, uh, our own century, last century, this century, uh, that it's perfectly possible for people with very serious problems with their mental functioning to have great power in this area. Um, secondly, uh, it assumes that the systems are technologically stable. In fact, there have been a terrifying number of n- near accidents uh, and uh, a, uh, there, there have been flocks of geese, for instance, which were thought by the Soviets to be an incoming uh, nuclear attack. Um, it turned out that the uh, man on duty in the station didn't pass on to his superiors uh, this, but sweated it out and it turned out to be a false alarm. This has happened dozens and dozens of times. There's a... a, a, a a nuclear bomb uh, aircraft flying across the United States which broke up and dropped two weapons, uh, neither of which, thankfully, uh, detonated. Uh, And one can go on. Uh, And the the third reason, of course, uh, is a a sane person uh, but doing it with very malicious intent. And I think we've got uh, examples of that uh, fairly close. So I think the, the idea of balanced deterrence is madness. Um, any other comments or questions? I have a question. Yes, please, John. Uh, I didn't understand if you eliminate plutonium and uh, refined um, uranium, how will that affect the peaceful use of nuclear energy? You don't need either of those to run nuclear power programs. I mean, I don't want to defend nuclear power at all. Um, And I think that its inherent potential to create fuel for the world's worst weapons is one very good reason why it's um, not really a terrific idea to use the world's most dangerous materials to to boil water. Um, And we have so many wonderful alternatives (laughs) that we that we don't exploit. Um, But there's no current reactors that need highly enriched uranium. It was used in research reactors, um, but it's not at all essential, and none of the world's current nuclear power reactors use highly enriched uranium. Um, There are a number of reactors that can use so-called mixed oxide fuel, where they mix a bit of plutonium in. Um, But that's really just been a way to try and justify countries like Japan accumulating 
more than 40 tonnes of plutonium for reasons that aren't immediately obvious and the concern that that's created. It's not necessary um, for the fuel. So it needn't affect nuclear power programs in any particular way. Any other comments or questions? Yes, please. Um, the US and the Russia and Russia have been in like a power struggle over since the, really the Cold War. But how will you get them to dismantle their nuclear arsenals without much of a fight? Yes. How do you make? The, um, yeah, I think we'll pass that one to Tim. No, seriously, it's a, it's a very good question, isn't it? Yeah, so of the 15,000 nuclear weapons that are in the world today, um, well over 90% of them are in the arsenals of just two countries, the two that you uh, mentioned, the US and Russia. Um, and they've been... Um, they've agreed on a number of occasions to... Uh, limit the number of nuclear weapons in their arsenals. The most recent uh, treaty is the New START Treaty. Um, this was under President Obama um, and um, it uh, placed a, a cap on the level of deployed weapons. Um, but you know, there are still thousands in each of their arsenals, including um, several hundred that are maintained on hair trigger alert, which means that they're ready to use within minutes of a warning. And they actually start to um, uh, use their, or deploy these weapons even before an order has been made uh, to use them. And so when you hear about a, a president um, having a certain number of minutes to order a nuclear strike, really um, what they're talking about is the number of minutes to call off a nuclear strike because it's all... The, you know, the, the processes are all uh, underway. So it's a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, in terms of how we make progress in the current uh, political climate, it's going to be difficult with uh, President Trump and uh, President Putin um, not seeing eye to eye. Um, but I think that this treaty uh, that's just been negotiated um, can help to put pressure on all nuclear-armed countries uh, to take their disarmament obligations more seriously. And uh, Australia has a role to play. I think that if we say to the United States that we don't agree with your nuclear weapons, um, that will have an impact. And I think that if you know, dozens of other US allies around the world do that as well, it will have an impact. And Fred mentioned that there was one country uh, involved in the negotiations this year um, that... Uh, voted against the adoption of the treaty, and that was the Netherlands. Uh, you might think that the Netherlands would be a fairly progressive country on this issue, but it actually hosts US nuclear weapons on its territory. So if we have some of these countries that host US nuclear weapons on their territory change their position and say, we don't want these weapons, we don't believe in these weapons as legitimate weapons... Um, then I think that that will have an impact as well. Um, so we don't expect that um, the US and Russia will suddenly disarm as a result of this. We don't think North Korea will suddenly disarm as a result of this. But we think that the principles embodied in the treaty uh, will change uh, public perceptions of nuclear weapons and will build that pressure on all of the world's countries over time. If I could um, just just add, there are many subtle ways in which this prohibition, this declaration that these weapons are illegal will work. Uh, for instance, um, if a, a commander is given an order uh, to carry out an illegal act, uh, in international law he's perfectly at liberty to refuse. And in fact, if he doesn't refuse... He's personally liable, and that's what the Nuremberg trials were all about, that an individual can't um, displace responsibility uh, up the tree. And I think that will have a huge effect, uh, and there are many other ways too. Tillman. Sorry, but I, I can't resist saying a couple of things. 
Because just last week, the head of strategic command in the United States, for the first time ever, talked publicly about, in realistic terms, about the possibility of refusing an order from President Trump to launch nuclear weapons. I'm not sure that would have happened before this treaty was adopted. I, th I take great hope from that. And a, a couple of other things I think, point, think is worth reminding ourselves. The extraordinary sort of sequence of cascading unilateral measures and treaty-based agreements that saw nuclear weapons numbers really drastically reduced around the late 80s and early 90s at the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union broke up. That was a really tense time. You know, the tensions were maybe even greater, but certainly between Russia and the US were greater than they are now, yet they were able to, to reach agreements then. But every country is committed legally and politically. They've said, they've agreed, they've signed up, they're bound in law to get rid of their nuclear arsenal. Sometimes that has to mean something. And if we look at the effect of other treaties, I also take enormous hope from that. As I mentioned, the United States and Russia and China and many of the larger states opposed the Landmines Treaty and the Cluster Munitions Treaty. They didn't want to join the negotiations. They haven't signed up. But the US now, at the very same meetings, and I've sat and listened to them, you know, in one sentence, absolutely can the irresponsibility of this ban treaty, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, that it will make things worse and it will introduce all kinds of mayhem and... It doesn't mean anything because the nuclear armed states aren't involved. And in the next breath, they will boast how they're in virtual compliance with the landmines treaty. They don't make them anymore. They don't export them. They only now use landmines in the demilitarised zone in Korea. They boast that they're almost in compliance to a treaty that they haven't even signed. And when it was proven in 2013 that chemical weapons had been used in Syria... At a very testy time when the US and Russia were very unhappy with each other about Crimea and about what was going on in Syria, even though Syria was not a party to the Chemical Weapons Convention, the power of the norm globally that you should not use, nobody should have chemical weapons, was so strong that Russia and the United States agreed to force Syria, they, and this took less than 24 hours, to force Syria to join the Chemical Weapons Convention and disarm... So 1,300 tonnes of chemical weapons have been dismantled by a, a program involving 32 countries. Despite the chaos of that war, that's been not completely successfully, but pretty successfully implemented. That's the power of the norm once it's clear that that's the standard. So I take great hope from that. This treaty is not something that any of the nuclear-armed states have ignored. This is not just some piece of, you know, highfalutin, flowery praise, you know, words from the United Nations that lots of fine words come from the United Nations that they can feel that they can happily ignore. They've been really bitterly opposed to this treaty. So it means it makes a difference. They have to answer. They feel on the defensive. So I take enormous comfort from those things. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? Yes, please. Um, you know how you were saying that during the 80s and the, the 90s there was a very tense time? I remember growing up in that time and there were shows like The Day After and the, the UK did one called Threads. But we had organisations like CND, um, mainly led by women camping out on Green and Common, which I could be wrong, was uh, where nuclear um, missiles were housed from the Americans in the UK. Do you think that those organisations are still integral to, you know, the, these treaties, the treaty and maybe the, the world, you know, being rid of nuclear weapons? Yeah, so many of the organisations um, that have been part of our coalition are organisations that have been working on this issue for decades um, one of them is CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in the UK. Um, and they have seen this treaty as a really valuable tool to put pressure on the British government to scrap Trident. Um, Trident is the fleet of nuclear-armed submarines. Um, all of the UK's nuclear weapons are based on submarines. Uh, there's been a big 
debate in recent years about whether to renew these weapons. Uh, there's a huge price tag attached to it. Um, unfortunately, the British Parliament did uh, vote to renew the weapons, uh, but it will be a lengthy process, and I think that this new treaty will be a really great tool for CND and other groups in the UK to uh, say that what you're doing now is illegal under international law. And we have protesters in the UK who are uh, blockading the bases where the nuclear weapons uh, are housed. Um, they're stopping convoys. So there are convoys that transport uh, nuclear weapons around the country and they're saying look, we have a treaty now that's been adopted by 122 nations declaring what you're doing illegal. Um, and that's really powerful. I think that that's a powerful public message. And although the uh, British government hasn't joined the treaty and so isn't bound by it, um, it's something that resonates. Um, so we, uh, you know, in our campaign, have built on decades of, of activism and and really just tried to uh, breathe new life into the movement and and really focus on this specific goal of the treaty and now using the treaty to advance the cause. Thank you, Tim. I, I think uh, it, it just, for me to briefly sum up, I think this is a most exciting time in, in history. Uh, Australia should be extremely proud of this achievement. Um, the dramatic progress is, is the results of tireless efforts of thousands of activists around the world. Um, and they've loudly protested uh, that uh, the use or even the uh, holding nuclear weapons is highly immoral, that there's no legitimate use for any of them and they must be banished from the face of the earth. Abolition of nuclear weapons is not a technical issue, it's a political issue. It's something that can be done, and now has been the most hopeful period of recent history. So thank you very much for coming along. Thank you for your support, and uh, if you feel um, uh, so moved, there are many ways which you can support this campaign.